As part of the University of Queensland's 2022 Changemaker series, UQ's Professor Nicole Gillespie delivered a panel discussion on leading confidently through uncertainty, hosted in Melbourne, Australia, and broadcast live to audiences around the world. The panellists were UQ Vice-Chancellor Professor Deborah Terry AO, Principal of Tanara Group John Wiley AC, Founder and Chair of Women in STEM Australia, Dr Marguerite Evans-Galia AM, and CEO of the Melbourne Rebels Rugby Union, Baden Stevenson. Join us as we explore Leading Through Disruption in 2022. Thank you for joining us. So we're going to be discussing Leading Through Uncertainty. Um, I will just mention that unfortunately, Brad Scott is unable to um, take part in the panel this evening. Uh, a familiar occurrence, he found out this morning that he had COVID and our well wishes are certainly with Brad for a quick recovery. So uncertainty certainly isn't new. However, in the last few years, we've seen such rapid change and disruption and adaptation by everyone in society in response to the pandemic. This has required leaders to hone their skills, shift their approaches, and lead to an environment that many would class as uncertain. Indeed, the term VUCA world, meaning volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity is a real buzzword at the moment, as is the new normal to refer to consistent and significant disruption, particularly following the pandemic. But of course, it's not only the pandemic um, that's causing uncertainty. Our impact on the environment is reaching a tipping point requiring urgent climate change. The Russian invasion of Ukraine is causing humanitarian crises, geopolitical shifts and significant uncertainty. Inflation and interest rates are on the rise and there's talk of potential economic recession. I'm hoping John might be able to uh, put us on the path of whether that's real or imaginary. And of course, digital disruption and transformation is continuing at a rapid rate. So before we start on the panel questions, we'll hear briefly from UQ's Vice-Chancellor and President, Professor Debbie Terry. Debbie is currently a Fellow and past President of the Academy of Social Sciences in Australia, as well as an appointed member of the ARC Advisory Council, amongst her many other roles. Debbie began her distinguished career at UQ in 1990 and has re rejoined us in August of 2020. So our panellists uh, alongside our Vice-Chancellor are John Wiley, AC, and Dr. Marguerite Evans-Galia, as I mentioned, as well as um, Nick Stiles. So John Wiley, AC, is a leading Australian investment banker with extensive experience in Australia's corporate and sports sectors. He's currently founder and chair of the Tanara Group, previously co-founder uh, of the advisory and investment firm Carnegie Wiley & Company, and was chair and CEO of Credit Suisse First Boston in Australia. He has served as president of the State Library of Victoria Board, chair of the Melbourne Cricket Ground Trust, and chair of the Australian Sports Commission, among his other roles. John is also a leading philanthropist alongside his wife Miriam through the John and Miriam Wiley Foundation, including the visiting fellowship at UQ they support, named in honour of John's father, Rodney Wiley, OBE. Dr. Marguerite Evans-Galia is an internationally recognized researcher and advocate for women in STEM. She's co-founder and CEO of Women in STEM Australia, a non-profit organization connecting women in STEM across every professional sector at a national level. Dr. Evans-Galia is also director of STEM Career Strategy at the Australian Academy of Technology and Engineering. 
She's an inductee and ambassador for the Victorian Honour Roll of Women and has been an advisor to government and various professional research associations, both in Australia and the USA. Nick Stiles is general manager of rugby at the Melbourne Rebels and Stiles oversees the club's re-energised football department and is responsible for the delivery of on-field success for the Rebels. He's a household name among Australian rugby circles. He's made 96 appearances for the Queensland Reds over 11 seasons before becoming an important member of the Wallabies front row during their dominant 2000 to 2002 era. Stiles was born in Melbourne and arrives at the Rebels boasting an impressive coaching resume for the last 16 years, having coached with the Queensland Reds, Brisbane City, Western Force, and most recently, one of Melbourne's strategic partners, the Kintetsu Liners in Japan's top challenge league. So again, thank you, Nick, for stepping in at short notice for us. What we'll do now is I'll hand over to our Vice-Chancellor, Professor Debbie, for a few words before we begin our panel discussion. Thank you very much, Nicole. And can I too acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we are meeting here this evening. We honour their elders and their continuing cultural and spiritual connection to this land as we walk together on the path to reconciliation. I'd also like to join Nicole in obviously acknowledging Professor Ian Kemish, AM Chair of our UQ Changemakers Board and all of the members of the board our moderator this evening, Nicole, Professor Nicole Gillespie. Thank you, Nicole, for undertaking that role. My fellow panellists, John, Marguerite and Nick, really looking forward to the discussion. And obviously UQ colleagues, alumni, donors and friends. And welcome one and all to this Changemakers event. And I'm really delighted to say we've got about 60 people here in the room with us at the Sheraton Hotel in Melbourne this evening and obviously close to a further 500 people who have registered to watch this event live by the web stream. And it is really wonderful to know that we have such an engaged global alumni community who are tuning in to this discussion from some very far-flung locations, including Bangladesh, Ecuador, Germany, China, Ghana, Canada, Spain, Mozambique, Nigeria, Mongolia, the UK, Thailand, and Afghanistan. So our, our graduates are really everywhere. Now, our Changemakers series was instigated by the university almost two years ago in August 2020 as a way of engaging with our global alumni community in discussions around some of the critical issues facing the world. In that time, we've held eight of these sessions covering topics as diverse as the new industrial revolution, the future of farming, Black Lives Matter, and navigating corporate social responsibility. And what I've been so impressed with is how keen our alumni community has been to engage in discussions on these complex issues that are so important to our future social and economic stability. Up until tonight, these events have been held as purely online events that we've hosted in a very small studio in Woolloongabba in Brisbane's southern suburbs. So I've had, I've been involved, I think, in most of them where you can't actually see anybody. You're just in this very small room with a small number of people. Some of our panellists have often been not even with us. 
and then somebody will announce. And we are now being joined by 770 people, but you can't see anybody. So it really is a great thrill for all of us to have travelled much further south this evening than Woolloongabba and to be here in Melbourne for our first in-person Changemakers event. And the fact that I think that we can now gather like this with a live audience is hopefully further evidence that we are starting to emerge from the most disruptive period of the pandemic. And it is certainly our intention to continue to take these Changemakers events on the road so that we get the chance to engage directly with many more of our amazing alumni around Australia and overseas. So no matter where you're located in the world, I think the characteristics of good leadership are remarkably consistent. And it's why tonight's discussion is so important. The traits that define outstanding leadership in the midst of uncertainty are, are universal. Leading in tough times, as we all know, requires empathy, resilience and courage. And clear communication is absolutely paramount. Clarity and consistency of message is absolutely vital in the midst of turbulence and uncertainty. But I do think it goes much further. As Nancy Cohen from the Harvard Business School has noted, we need to recognise and acknowledge people's fear and uncertainty at the same time as giving them a sense of hope for the future. You can't just do the former. You've also got to have a narrative for what the future does look like. She went on to quote the famous lines in President Roosevelt's 1933 inaugural address during the Great Depression, and I quote, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. This is no unsolvable problem if we face it wisely and courageously. And to do this, as we all know, takes honesty to outline the challenges ahead, courage to admit that we don't always know everything and the willingness to project a clear and realistic path forward. These are just some of the themes I'm sure our panelists will explore this evening as we do reflect on the relentless uncertainty that we've all been dealing with over the past couple of years. And I can't wait to hear the differing experiences and perspectives of my fellow panellists. I'm going to hand over to Nicole uh, to get the discussion underway, but it's great to have you all here. Welcome everybody who's joining us via web stream and thank you. Thank you very much. So to kick us off on our discussion today, my first question to you is, um, do you feel that we've entered a new period of uncertainty? Um, where essentially uncertainty is now expected or that it's something that we've always faced and if you do feel that uncertainty is at a heightened level how has this affected leadership and, and the way that we lead maybe if i can hand over to you john to kick us off it certainly feels like the world is a lot uh more uh, more uncertain place um right now i mean you'd be a pretty strange person not to think it's a, a very uncertain world at the moment for all the reasons that uh, debbie articulated but um, it's also the case, um, you know, that uh, if you go back, the world looked, looked like a pretty uncertain place uh, right after 9-11 when the planes flew into the North Tower, North Tower and the South Tower. And uh, the world certainly felt like a very uncertain place, particularly for those of us in financial markets um, in uh, 2008 when the, when the entire world financial system went into meltdown and we, and we were starting to wonder whether, you know, money sitting in uh, Commonwealth Bank uh, deposits was actually safe. 
So, uh, so uncertainty is not something new. It's, it, it just manifests itself in very different ways. And uh, there are different elements to uncertainty at the moment. There's obviously technological disruption that's uh, changing all our lives and changing, changing businesses rapidly. The only certainty is uncertainty in life and, uh, and change and disruption. And, and uh, you know, one of the things I'm sure we'll talk about is that's, that presents lots of opportunity for organisations and businesses. And I do think that because of the uh, interconnectedness of the world, that we're all sort of sitting there addicted to our smartphones these days, you know, our, our awareness of uh, changes and, and, and disruptions in, in all parts of the world now is, is completely changed. And uh, so our, we, we've got a much great, much heightened um, sense of uncertainty now, but, uh, you know, I think that we just need to keep us, keep a sense of perspective, right? And always say, keep your eyes on the horizon rather than, rather than on the ground in front of you. And, uh, you know, that can present a lot of opportunity. I would agree with John. I mean, uncertainty is something that human civilization has always faced. It, faced. I think the philosopher Edgar Morin was the person who said uncertainty is, in fact, intrinsic to the human condition. But I think, as, as many people have noted, I think, over the past few months, it's probably the most unstable period that we've seen since the end of World War II, if we put together the fact that we've got, you know, the pandemic, you know, we do hope that we're seeing the end of it, but there's still uncertainty. There's still uh, many, many cases across Australia and around the world. There's still threats of new strains. You know, and in addition to that, of course, we've got the geopolitical tension. And I think, you know, for, for all of us watching what's happening in the Ukraine now is 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 deeply troubling and 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 certainly a a, a, a very difficult uh, situation. We we do have to work through climate change, what that means, how we are going to, uh, you know, move into a, a net zero future, and that will have implications for every single one of our sectors. And of course, as Nicole's mentioned, we're also looking at, you know, major changes to the nature of work, uh, what technology will mean for the jobs and, and work of the future. But nevertheless, I think a you know, as a society, we've coped with many, many periods of extreme uncertainty across the ages. And B, there are there are opportunities uh, that I'm sure we'll 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 talk some more about. But I guess Nicole, just to answer your question um, directly, I think all all sectors have really used this period. I think to understand really what risk means. Uh, and I think for the first time in many cases, those risk registers that we've all prepared for many, many years have suddenly become something that we've spent a lot of time focused on. Uh, there have certainly been uh, concerns around what various uh, parts of that uncertainty means for our business models. How do we protect those models going forward? How do we manage a number of risks simultaneously? But um, yeah, I, I think there's certainly uh, opportunities as well as we look to the future. Thank you, Debbie. Um, Marguerite, we'll continue on. Sure. Uncertainty, obviously, you know, as, as you've already said, is clearly always been with us. The one difference I think that I can consider for this period of uncertainty with the pandemic and obviously past pandemics is that this was truly global and that every single person was affected. This is the most amazing social experiment ever. And it's, it's going to generate data for years and years and decades and decades to come. And to me, 
The difference is that every single person can empathise with how someone else is feeling. That's a massive shift in our own perspectives. And it is also, you know, completely turned on its head, the workplace model, mm -hmm. as you said. And how do we deal with the culture shift, um, you know, of, yes, we have a, a, a working from home model, we have an in-office model, but what happens when you have a, a broken workforce that's across those two places? The office becomes a stark, desolate place to go to if you don't have enough people there. Working from home can be quite isolating. These are uncertain times, you know. You know, organisations and companies, they're not entirely sure how they're going to navigate that. So I think the uncertainty has certainly shifted. And the one thing that I find unique about times like this is that every single person has been affected and can empathise with the situation. Yeah, thank you. And Baden, please. Thanks for the opportunity to uh, speak tonight. I, I come from a slightly different lens. I'm, I'm from a sporting background. And, and during COVID times, particularly in 2020 and 2021, uh, all sports was massively affected. And uh, I can only talk from a Melbourne Rebels perspective where the team that I work for, uh, we were rushed out of Melbourne uh, twice for long periods of time. So a lot of players and staff who have young kids, uh, families, support networks, Leaving leaving their support network uh, to, uh, to to you know, to be uh, disengaged with it with their with their families and yeah you know, the nature of rugby or sport in general it is you know, and Nick Styles former Wallaby and, and former coach here everything within the, the sporting environment is dictated to by the schedule what you wear where you need to be what you eat and then to be thrown into complete chaos uh, it, it it was a massive curveball and, and a lot of people that work in sport. Uh, are just so regimented in their thinking and their ways and their structure. So uh, what it did for, for myself and for the people that, uh, within our organisation, it made us think differently and uh, we didn't have all the answers, but what communication was key. And yeah, we, we quickly shifted our mindset to let's actually focus on, uh, on what we can control. Mm -hmm. uh, let's not get concerned with things that are out of our control. And uh, at the time, yeah, most of the decisions in and around sport and, and life and in business, it was government, medical, um, legal factors before any decisions could be made. So um, I, I think that for me, it was a big shift in learning and understanding um, empathy for, the, for what the players and the staff were going through. And uh, and by the simple nature of professional sport, athletes are quite selfish in their nature and, and, and often they have to be. Uh, but I, I think that it opened up their sphere of thinking. And actually, uh, you know, by the end of our, our first campaign, our leadership group uh, had such a different um, feeling and empathy for our coaches who all had young children who they hadn't seen for three months with wives that were struggling without family support stuck in Melbourne. So I think what we've really heard here is, yes, we've always had uncertainty, but we have had quite unprecedented, you know, uncertainty in terms of how we've experienced it as a society with all of us, you know, really Im impacted. But also we've heard the positives that are coming out of this, greater empathy, you know, greater understanding for each other, um, across all different kind of sectors and roles. So fascinating. Um, so we know that people can respond very differently to change and disruption and uncertainty. Um, what do you feel people need and expect of leaders during sort of turbulent times? And maybe for this one, we can perhaps ask you, Debbie, to kick us off with this. 
communication is 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 critical and i think we would all agree during these periods you cannot over communicate you've got to be clear you've got to be consistent you've got to be transparent and you've got to communicate with 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 clarity so i think you know that's one part of it i think the other bit that we've already seen is 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 you have to you have to empathize you have to show compassion for the impact that these unprecedented times are having on you know, in, 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 in my, my case, you know, a large uh, community of students, many of our students have been uh, studying internationally, they haven't been able to come to Australia, a large and, and diverse uh, staff community, and being able to show empathy and, and compassion, I think, uh, as I say, it, you know, that that is critical. But then I think there's two things. One is, maintaining trust through that period, that you are being honest, that you are being transparent, that you're acknowledging it if, you know, you haven't quite got things right or you've perhaps moved too quickly to announce something and then you've seen some uh, changes to, to, to guidelines. But uh, I think then the other bit is being able to articulate a narrative for the future, a way that, you know, a sense of hope uh, that, you know, and some of that's about appealing to our sense of shared values, our areas of strength. And I, I, I know through uh, particularly last year with our, our very large management conference that, that we hold once a year of really having all of our leaders across all of the institution together and sort of painting uh, a path forward, acknowledging the university's strengths, acknowledging the things that 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 we are good at some of the things that we had been been able to draw on through, uh, you know, the initial periods of the pandemic, but then being able to articulate where the risks were and how we were going to seek to address them. So you know, you can't gild the lily. I mean, you can't be overly optimistic, but just being able to give a sense of yes, there is hope. We'll pull together as a community. And this is what that path forward might look like. You've really nailed it there by saying bring people with you. That's a key part of the journey. And obviously communication is key. Empathy, trust, respect, all of those aspects are absolutely top of mind. You have to kick your emotional intelligence into hyperdrive and you really have to tune into people. Um, the one thing that I found was incredibly effective with my team was just to have a conversation. So we'd have a 15-minute coffee touch touch point every so often, just when you felt that you hadn't talked to people for a while. So we'd touch base. How are you doing? We found this particularly important because we had part of our team in Melbourne and we had part of our the rest of our team in Canberra. The two experiences were very different at different times. And so it was really wonderful to have supportive colleagues on my team in particular. I, I, I valued their support. I valued their understanding. There were two of us in Melbourne and it certainly helped to overcome any isolation. And so you can have leadership at other levels as well. But if you've ever looked at small children when something, you know, a big bang or something frightens them, they immediately look to their parent. How are you reacting to this? Does it mean something bad to me? That's exactly what we do in crisis. We look to our leaders to steady the ship. 
okay? Things are looking uncertain. We're traveling into uncertain waters. And it's very, very easy to pick poor leadership. We, we, we can be the strongest critics of poor leadership every time. We make lots of mistakes. But it is really hard to look for those opportunities where you can be a good leader. And it's absolutely what you said, empathy, trust, respect. If you break trust, everything else is lost. No matter how hard you work, you have to have trust. And, you know, you build trust by giving trust. And, and to me, that was a very core ingredient that we had to trust each other. If you're working from home, you're working. Yeah, you know, there was no question in our minds that someone wouldn't be working. Mm. And I know that for other leaders and managers, that was challenging. They, they had it in their head, this old school thinking of, oh, they're lying on the couch. No, they're not. <laughs> they're struggling through a pandemic. They've probably got kids they're trying to care for. Um, so, so I think it's really important that leaders realise that we are the ones people look to and that we have to lead through uncertainty no matter what we're feeling ourselves and how difficult it is. We have to steady that ship and we have to give that picture of hope for the future. Yeah, John. I completely agree with that. I think they're brilliant comments. I mean, our four guiding principles during the pandemic were empathy, experimentation, uh, steadfastness and positivity. And uh, I'll talk about experimentation first, because I think you've, you've talked brilliantly about empathy and, and uh, positivity. So we decided at one point, it was when uh, the second lockdown was announced, we said, well, let's try and do something different. And we said, the whole human race has been brought together in this amazing way through this pandemic and through, through video technology. So why don't we get some amazing people on the video from all around the world and, uh, and get them to tell their stories and, and just uh, you know, tell the stories of their careers, you know, what's... what's made their careers and what, you know, what have been the challenges and the risks they've taken and the things that have worked for them and haven't worked for them. And, uh, and so we, we called it Legends in Lockdown and uh, it was one hour uh, once a week and, uh, and we just had these amazing, amazing people. And uh, because of that sort of connectivity of the human spirit during the pandemic, all these amazing people said, yes, we couldn't believe it. So we had the, the, the uh, men's Olympic downhill ski champion from Pyeongchang, this Norwegian guy. We had uh, James Gorman who runs Morgan Stanley. We had uh, Richard Flanagan, Noel Pearson, and um, it was just amazing. Um, so we went on from there to uh, continuing the experimentation theme to, um, we said, well, let's do a wine tasting on Friday nights. And uh, so we sent a bottle of wine around to all, all the members of the team. And we got some, uh, some wine guru to explain what the, all the uh, wine types were. And we had 100% attendance for that one, actually. It was, uh, it was, that, that proved pretty popular, funnily enough. So, uh, you know, when, when all else fails, you sort of make stuff up and, uh, and, and having a bit of sense of fun actually is um, you know, keeping that sort of lightness of spirit in, in dark times is really, really helpful. With empathy, I agree with everything that's been said. I just, I, I, I you know, it's the empathy is, it's a, it's a much used term and, and, and it's a really, it's quite a nuanced term in my view that you've got to be genuine, you've got to be genuine about empathy, right? You get this, this sort of, there's a, there's, there's, there's a tendency towards a style of leadership, which is, hey, I do empathy and you know, I'm coming along for 10 minutes to talk to you at a cocktail party. I mean, you have to genuinely care about people. You have to genuinely care about your people and then take an interest in them and, you know, know people's, you know, family situations and their, or, you know, all the things that, that, that impact their lives when they're standing there talking to you. And, um, you know, there was a bit of a term that went around at the start of the pandemic about we're all in this together. And the fact of the matter is we weren't. You know, there were a lot of us at the, at the more advanced stages of our careers who had, you know, bigger houses and, 
and the capacity to sort of you know isolate ourselves from our kids thankfully and um and uh, do our own thing right and have a, have a little bit of personal space and and there are, you know a lot of you know don't say we're all in this together to somebody who's just lost a family member and can't attend the funeral you know don't say that to you know somebody who's homeschooling you know sitting around the kitchen table with with, with two kids always living in a, in a studio apartment you know being genuine and authentic and actually uh, being honest is uh, about about you know the the how you relate to people is really important. Steadfastness is super important. Um, you know, there was, thankfully it wasn't in the Melbourne Rebels, Baden, but there were a number of examples of uh, sporting organisations in particular during during COVID when it first hit. You know, they took the opportunity to, to make large staff cuts, you know, and and, and that it went down so badly and, and, that was, and that lost the trust of their, not just their supporters, but also the staff, you know, the staff members and the like. Because we're seen to be a sort of cynical, taking a cynical advantage of an opportunity to cut costs. You know, there was another another agenda at play. So, being steadfast in in your pursuit of corporate goals is super important. And then finally, as uh, as as Debbie and Marguerite were saying, you know, just being positive about it. You know, we and all of us in leadership positions know that feeling when you come and you're having a really shit day. You know, you walk in and and uh, and and you're not not feeling that great. But your job as a leader is to is to project positivity, not not. Not not positivity that that lacks a, a, a reasonable and plausible balance, but you but you need to stay positive because your people do look up to you, and they and they and they look to you for energy and inspiration and and drive and motivation. And so you've got to stay you've got to stay positive and be on the front foot and and look over the horizon at the at the you know with the goals that are there. And and you know one of the things I said to my team was just because the world's gone into its shell doesn't mean you have to too. You know and and uh, you can take these times of great uncertainty and disruption and upheaval and use them to your advantage. You know, everyone else is standing still. If you can move ahead, well, guess what? You move ahead in, in, the, in the competitive race in your field. And, uh, you know, I used to walk around Caulfield Park during lockdowns and, and I said to my wife on numerous occasions, I want to be able to say in five years' time that, that I used and our organisation, you used the time of lockdown when you actually had time, a bit of time to think, to, to think about how to make decisions during lockdown, during that time, to make decisions that in five years' time you look back and say they were they were critical enabling decisions for the organisation to, to use that time. I guess that's the that's the overarching message I give to you tonight is just you got there's, there's no matter how uncertain or disrupted things feel at any, any particular moment, there's always opportunity in these moments. There's been some great points raised. The only thing that I'd like to add, uh, uh, I had a mentor once say to me, people won't remember what you say, but they'll remember how you make them feel. And I just thought certainly through COVID, uh, when people were under stress uh, and challenged, including myself, it was you know, to try and be consistent with your behaviours and, and to, you know, to, to uh, show leadership. Um, but looking back now over that 18-month period, I, I've been fortunate enough to still have a very similar leadership group. And I think there's something to be said to actually have the shared experiences of going through some tough times together that, you know, that there's a, a far, far stronger bond and relationship that, uh, that you feel that no matter what gets thrown at us now, that, that we're, you know, we, we, together we can uh, work our way through it. So there was, there was huge growth opportunities for that on the relationship front. So what I'm hearing here is that, you know, even through uncertainty and the disruption, which is often seen as a negative, um, we've also heard quite a lot of positives um, coming through here. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about what you've experienced in terms of the positives or the benefits that have come through this period of, of disruption and uncertainty? Perhaps maybe we'll start with you. Yeah. Uh, look, I, I think um, 
there's been a massive shift with staff wanting to feel valued. And yeah, I think that the days of traditional nine to five and yeah, it's um, yeah, this is what I expect. And this is what, this is what I will deliver for the job. It's, it's far more broad uh, these days. And, and I think that it's, it's a good place uh, because the opportunity to show flexibility, to show care, but actually to work in a different model, to get some balance. And yeah, I've, I've been fortunate to live my um, work in a field that I'm really passionate about for, for 20 years and, um, and I've loved it and I've traveled the world and whatever else, but it wasn't until the first lockdown that, that I had a good long hard look at myself and said, have I got the balance right with my two children? And my daughter only just turned 18 uh, yeah, last month. And there's times where I thought, geez, I was an absent husband, an absent father and, and uh, my wife even had some, uh, yeah, when we were early in our married days, uh, had, had some health issues. And, yeah, I had a big ego and I didn't want to let anyone down. And I was so determined to, yeah, to, yeah, to, yeah, to achieve. And, uh, and I think that, um, yeah, I, I've got, a, I, I've shifted the way that I think and I've shifted the way that, uh, and have supported um, yeah, the people around me, and uh, and I feel that yeah, the, the connection and um, and and the longevity and being able to actually hang on to staff and uh, uh, and and yeah, we've got a saying yeah, we, we don't want to be a traditional model, and uh, we've got to have a startup mentality. And um, even my management team, we've got um, yeah, the Nick's in the room. We, yeah, there's there's three of out of my five management team that actually don't uh, their families don't live in Melbourne, and there's a bit of a hybrid model, which is yeah, if someone had said that to me. Uh, 18 months ago, I said, you, there's no way it can happen. Absolutely no way. But to be able to understand that, yeah, the kids might be finishing year 12 or they've got yeah, different things in their life and to be able to say, listen, I'm prepared. I've got trust in you and I know you'll do the job and I know your commitment's there and you don't have to be in the office or yeah, hand in hand every single day. We can, we can make it work. And it's, uh, it's been fascinating. And, and someone said, yeah, social experiment. I, yeah, I think there's been a lot of learnings, um, yeah, certainly in, in the sporting organisation. It's shifted uh, tremendously. I completely agree. Technology obviously is the biggest positive that comes out of this across every single sector, affects everyone. Um, I completely endorse everything you said as well. I think that connectivity has really changed and the flexibility of the workplace. But technology has really enabled us to connect more broadly. The other powerful thing about all those Zoom meetings that we found incredibly hard and, and still do for many, you know, who will work from home is that it actually equalises voices. So because everyone's on the screen together, they feel an equal voice in the room. Whereas right now we have people who are sitting up the back who may or may not have a quieter voice compared to the confident people sitting up the front. And so that happens in a lecture theatre, that happens in a classroom, right? And so that's, that's also how it happens right now, but not on Zoom. Everybody's in the same place, in the same spot and that to me is a an opportunity for us to equalize voices and to make people feel like they have a say and I feel like that 
empathy and understanding of different people's situations that you were talking to about really getting to know your people. You realize those very different circumstances and it enables you as a leader, but also as a workplace to cater to their needs much more effectively. So we have completely become creative. We have become innovative as a workplace and as a leadership team to find new ways of how we can keep someone like you in our organization who's young and bright and smart and really wants to be there for a long time because the turnover has been phenomenal for some organizations and recruitment continues to be a challenge. So to me, there's, yeah, there's some pros and cons there. Anything, Debbie or John, you wanted to add to that? Absolutely agree with the comments that have been made. I think one of the things that We've certainly, and I'm now talking from the university's uh, perspective broadly, but certainly for UQ, if we go back to March 2020, we had a week where we had to shift every single one of our 1,500 courses online. Now, you know, the, the sector had been talking about doing things online for the last decade. And yes, there'd been things that were being done around the edges. Some of our counterparts obviously moving much more into that space than, than we had. But to suddenly say every one of those courses, whether it's in medicine, whether it's in engineering, in business, humanities, we would need to teach online. And, you know, I think we certainly learned a lot out of that. All of our student feedback was, was very clear. They really appreciated what we did. I felt that we had communicated very well with them. They didn't really like it as much as uh, being on, on campus. But, you know, what, what we now know coming through that is that I think we understand the value out of the campus experience, where it really matters to bring our students together. If we all think, if I think back to my university life at ANU, it was, the, it was the tutorials, it was the laboratories, it was talking to fellow students, it was talking to staff. They were, that's the value added the campus experience, the residential experiences. But there are some things that we should probably do online and we will continue to do online. If you're delivering content, that's often done best online, smart, well, you know, really good lectures, but then we want the students to have that material to come into class and use the material to debate it. What does it mean to challenge it? All of the things that universities stand for. And I, so, you know, I think there will be positives that will come out of that. We've had many, many of us international students offshore. And I think into the future, we will see more hybrid models where students, international student intensive periods in Australia at our universities, but then maybe do some online to start off with and maybe to end with, which will make it more affordable uh, to, 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 to many in our regions. And then as we look to the future where we know our graduates will need to come in and out of education, perhaps far more than my generation did. Yes, and now we'll be able to do more of that online, more of it in ways that really do suit um, you know, busy professionals. So lots of positives. And I think the challenge will be that we could see that would work and really help us into the future that we, we retain that focus. I mean, to me, the, the pandemic reinforced some, some existing uh, trends, some existing uh, directions of life. Um, and, and uh, you know, I'll just nominate three of them. One is um, 
the sense of and importance of, uh, of purpose in an organisation. Um, uh, secondly, the, um, the, the, the sense of global connectedness and the importance of global connectedness. And thirdly, the, the trend towards ESG, um, which is, as, you know, as people in the business world know, just, uh, you know, it's probably the number one trend in uh, financial markets right now. On purpose, um, you know, I think all of us, uh, particularly those of us in financial markets who do tend to think, you know, occasionally, there used to be a bit of a culture in financial markets, thankfully it's now largely gone, but a bit of a sort of a masters of the universe culture. And I think all of us, everyone in the, in the human race had this experience during the, the, the pandemic of um, a loss of sense of control. You know, we all, we all felt going before February 2020, we felt we had control of our lives and um, complete control of our lives almost. And we found all of a sudden that we didn't, you know, and 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 so I think that's that's brought out uh, certainly in our in our organisation and a lot of organisations we talk to a sense that uh, you know young people in particular are looking for organisations with a sense of purpose, with a good purpose about them, because um, they, they feel like well while while they're on planet Earth they want to be doing something good with their lives and 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 good for the world. So so you know it's not about getting the best people to come and work for you these days is not about offering the highest pay packages. It's actually, it's the complete deal. It's, you know, are you an organization with good ethics, good values, a strong sense of purpose, you know, as well as, well as, as giving people a good, uh, you know, a good lifestyle. Secondly, um, this sense of global connectedness is hugely important, you know, and, and, and I think, um, you know, it just reinforced that, that, uh, you know that that what was going on. We didn't know what was going on in in parts of the world in September 2019, and yet that was hugely important to how life was going to play out for all of us for the next two and a half years. And so, um, you know, the, the, this being aware of and being across what's going on in the world. I always say to my employees, you know, if you're if you're just reading the the, the domestic newspapers, you know, if you're reading the Australian the Financial Review and the, and the Australian newspaper and the and the Asian newspaper, where is your information advantage relative to other people? You know, if you're investing in financial markets, you need an, you need an information advantage. And, and so being globally aware um, is, I think, is, is a second consequence of it. Existing trend beforehand, but, but more important than ever before, reinforced. And then thirdly, I think the, um, the pandemic has just made it absolutely clear to all of us that we're living in a very, in a fragile planet, you know, and, and, and uh, things that you never expect can happen do happen, and they're not always good. And uh, and so we need to take care of our planet. And uh, so this you know trend that was accelerating before COVID of, of ESG, environmental, social, and governance investing, is going to is going to accelerate, I think. And uh, you know you're seeing large investment funds now developing, focused specifically on the, on that thematic. And uh, it's going to be a very very significant thematic for everyone in financial markets and business for, for decades to come. So I think we've heard um, a lot of benefits coming out of there, actually, perhaps even more so than, the, than the, some of the, the negative sides of these, at least from a leadership perspective, particularly a lot of reflection around personal leadership, but then also reflection on how to make things better in the workplace and what do we really value and what do we want to take on into the future. Um, my last question then to the panel before we hand over for questions from the audience. What did you find the most challenging about leading through uncertainty? Um, and how have you learned to navigate through that challenge? And maybe I'll throw it to John because he looks ready. <laughs> uh, most challenging was make sure I, I took, turned the uh, Zoom camera off when I was wearing shorts and a T-shirt, you know, and, and forgotten to shave in the morning, you know, and I was lecturing everyone about, oh, you've got to present yourself properly on Zoom. 
in every problem and every challenge, there's an opportunity. You know, it's, it, it depends how you look at life. You know, are you a glass half full or a glass half empty person? You know, and, and life's pretty good if you're a glass half full person, I tell you. Um, and all of us felt the glass had been drained over the last, uh, over the last couple of years. And, and I'm sure people sitting in this room had quite different experiences of the pandemic and, and, you know, real just huge personal challenges and family challenges for so many people. So, uh, but from a, you know, from a standpoint of your organization and what you do with your life, um, there's always opportunity. And, um, you know, we've had one of our people put a hand up and, she, and she's gone over to Oxford University now working on Sacoma with the Venture Capital Fund over there. It's an amazing opportunity. That came, out, that came about because of the Zoom conferences I was talking about. There's an old saying in sporting cricket, get on the front foot. I found that I was, I was a pretty terrible cricketer, actually. Getting on, whether I was on the front foot or the back foot, I got out a lot. But, but uh, if you get on the front foot with your life and, uh, and decision-making, you're generally going to wind up ahead. I actually agree with you on the self-care aspect because the one thing about having your workplace at home is you never, you never stop. And our setup, um, my family's here tonight, so they'll appreciate this. My husband was in the bedroom. We lived in a two-bedroom townhouse. The husband was in the bedroom. The, my daughter was in her, her bedroom and I was in the lounge. And so, because I have back-to-back meetings, no one could really come downstairs and relax and watch TV or anything. So there was very limited um, aspects of our lives during the lockdowns, particularly the the 5K radius here in Melbourne, which I think um, personally was my hardest time in both leadership and personal self-care and management. Um, I actually found that really hard that 5k limit um but also i think the sense of isolation and it wasn't so much i'm an introvert by nature i'm not one to go out and seek lots of social contact i do a lot of it for my work very very happily but then i have to re-energize afterwards whereas it was more that nuanced Um, when you're in the office and something changes, um, everybody will hear about it. It'll ripple across the room. Oh, we, we do this now, or, or we contact this person or those little things. I wouldn't hear about it. I only hear about them in the leadership team half an hour every week. And so I had to capture some of those, um, by simply picking up the phone. And so I had to find tools to actively overcome that sense of isolation. I also reached out to people for Zoom coffees. Zoom coffee became a big thing for me. I networked via Zoom. I taught others to network via Zoom. I lead a very large um, PhD network in mentoring and we had mentors for a lot of our cohort, which was fantastic. But we, we really encourage them to ne- continue their networking via Zoom. And, and that was overcoming that sense of isolation um, because all the events had flipped online and they weren't getting that in-person experience. So, so for me, it was a little bit of isolation and the self-care aspect. So I learned to put the window blind up for when the office is open and the window blind down for when the office is closed. And that was just something physical I could do to stop myself from working because otherwise I could go till two in the morning. Debbie, how about you? Probably the most difficult, the most challenging was where we really had to make uh, very quick decisions that would impact upon, you know, thousands of students and thousands of staff and be absolutely clear 
on being able to communicate to all parts of our community to understand, you know, what, what disadvantaged parts of our community, our student community would need, how we would be able to support them, how we could ensure, you know, and I think it goes to the kinds of comments that Marguerite, Marguerite's made. I mean, there were some of our students who didn't have access to um, you know, internet that was reliable enough. And we were saying, no, you, you know, you've got to, uh, where the university is now closed, we would then have to make a decision on which parts of the university we could keep open to ensure that they could keep their studies going. There were, part, you know, students in our community who didn't have all of the equipment they needed. And it, so that was probably the most stressful is making these decisions that on the face of it, you know, you'd think, oh, yes, you know, there's a lockdown, but what does that mean and how do you communicate it and how do you support all, all parts of the community? I think the other side of it was then just acknowledging, and I'm just going to go to our staff now. I mean, we had a vaccine team, an amazing team. I think the whole nation was following what Paul Young and Trent Munro and Keith Chappell were doing with, with their vaccine, making sure we could keep that research going. Um, and then, of course, you know, finding out at the 11th hour that there was a diagnostic interference that meant they couldn't proceed. And, you know, they got up and they were back in the lab the next week working on it. The underlying technology is fantastic. It's all looking really good. And I've no doubt that it will be the basis of, of successful vaccines into the future. But then we had, you know, in the first year, I think I sent you a media monitoring group for Australia had the fact that there were 67,000 university researchers, health academics being quoted, being interviewed, giving expertise across the pandemic. I mean, that's amazing, you know, giving advice on, you know, the dynamics of panic buying, the mathematics of social distancing, you name it, flattening the curve, what does that mean? But, you know, day after day, we had researchers and academics who were being interviewed, giving expert advice. I mean, that's amazing. And I think actually out of that period, Australians came to realise just how valuable it is having the depth of expertise in our, in our universities, not just the vaccine team, but the the public health experts, the, uh, you know, the, the uh, researchers from economics right across our institution who were prepared day after day to answer questions, to, to be involved with media interviews. So then it was a challenge to make sure that I could acknowledge all of, all of what our, our, our community was doing uh, at the same time as having to make, you know, decisions often very, very quickly. The old saying of leadership can be a lonely place. I found that at the start of COVID because all eyes were on me and I didn't have the answers. But I will finish on a uh, positive note. Um, uh, my kids had been hounding me for about three years. Can we get a dog? Can we get a dog? And I just went, <laughs> anyway, just pre-COVID, I finally relented and we got a golden retriever pre-COVID. It was more good luck than than anything. And um, uh, we got this golden retriever, Ted, and I found out that there's a whole new dog community out there and made lots of new friends. So. That was a, a, a great thing of COVID. None of them knew my name. They just basically said Ted's owner. So, <laughs> Lots of challenges, all really different. But what I'm hearing through all of them, digging deep <laughs> and being rewarded for it. So we'll, we'll take a little bit of time now for um, 
questions from the audience. I will start with one of the um, questions that came through our online audience, and thank you for that. So Chloe online asks, do you feel that women face different challenges as leaders than men, and um, particularly during uncertainty? Maybe we should uh, prudently pass it to our female uh, leaders to, to respond to that. I don't know. It could be interesting to hear what the men have to say. <laughs> So I pondered on this, I've pondered on this type of question many times. And what I would say is that there's no difference in the challenges that you'll face from your role per se. You will face the same decisions, the same strategy, the same operational issues, those sorts of things. You'll, you'll face that, but it's the systemic culture in which you experience experience those challenge challenges that is vastly different for women vastly different for people of color people who are indigenous people who are lgbtqi underrepresented in leadership so to me they have to perform and women have to perform above and beyond to prove themselves and to to really gain that that status and credibility within any context be it an, a room, be it an organisation, be it a sector. And that, to me, is the main difference. If I was coaching a football team, I'd face the same challenges as the coach there, but the culture and the acceptance of who I am may be very, very, very different. And that's definitely true within the STEM sector, where it is a primarily male-dominated workforce, somewhere like engineering, which is even more male-dominated than some of the other sectors. And so it's a, it's a very much a cultural thing and a systemic um, culture and structural biases that can go against, because we don't have a lot of women in leadership at decision-making levels, so on the boards, on the promotion committees, on the recruitment committees. So that just sort of creates this ongoing um, male-dominated stereotype of leadership I'm always conscious I did a fantastic leadership retreat last week and I had two days of um, learning how to be a better leader and I thought the entire two days was brilliant bar one one and a half hour session which was telling me how I should stand how I should dress how I should speak how I should look and how I should act. And that to me perpetuates a male stereotype of leadership, which is what we're used to seeing. We see that on the media. We see that, you know, day to day. It's normal because that's what we see. That's what we know. Whereas I would love to see a diversification of leadership over time. So my, my question is nuanced. Um, my answer is nuanced to that question. So I, I don't actually think you'd necessarily face the same challenges in terms of the hard decisions you have to make, the hard operational plans you have to develop, the strategic objectives you have to implement, but it's the culture and the environment and the practices and the policies around that that are different. The pandemic, I think, um, the literature tells us very clearly that leadership teams that are diverse are more effective I think that was shown right through the pandemic that diverse, we needed diverse leadership teams. We needed different perspectives. We needed to be able to pull together as a leadership team during a very challenging 
uh, time and I was just reminded time and time again how important the diversity of the team was. Uh, the second thing I'd, I'd comment on in, in my world, the university world, I was very conscious that uh, the pandemic certainly impacted upon our early career uh, female researchers, uh, particularly uh, they were often uh, particularly involved, obviously, in the challenges of, of homeschooling. It affected everybody, but they would often uh, be taking more responsibility. We are very conscious of that, and we are very focused on ensuring that uh, this generation coming through of early career scientists, researchers across all areas, that that, that is acknowledged so that we don't lose uh, their important capability into the future. Being on the promotion committee at the University of Queensland, I'll definitely be taking that into consideration as well. Um, in the interest of time, I may open it up now for questions from the floor. Did anyone here like to pose a question to our fantastic panel here? coming around and while we're coming around to that question I just wanted to say thank you for the incredible insights that all of you have shared um, I, I did a PhD on leadership and trust and yet I've come away from this you know with new insights as well so thank you very much for that oh hello thanks everyone um, it's been very interesting hearing you all talk about how to keep how to keep things steady um, in reaction to this big event what I'm a bit curious about is turning it around to actually with, we're in the beginnings of a big event, which is climate change. And um, what I'm actually quite interested in is how one might lead to anticipate something that you know is coming through. And part of that is not just keeping things steady, it's actually making change happen. That might be business models or governments, decision-making practices or all sorts of things. <laughs> so, uh, my question, it's a pretty open one, I'm you know, wondering if any of you have thoughts about just flipping the story from a reaction to an event to anticipation of something that we know is coming through. So specifically on climate change, I mean, there's just never been a challenge, a problem, a harder problem in the world, in my view, right? I mean, it's a, this is a, this is a, a problem that, that, that divides generations, it divides countries, it divides nations, it divides developed world and developing world. It's it is it, it is the, the definitive wicked problem, and um, uh, as I, I think I've indicated, I'm a bit of a glass half full person. I do think that despite all the setbacks and all the the, the, the challenges, I do think the world is walking crab like incrementally, very slowly, but it's walking crab like towards a solution and, and towards you know, coming up with with a response, with with a, a, at least a vaguely effective response to what is no doubt it's not just an economic, but it's a it's a it's an existential and a, and a moral challenge for all of us. It's very hard for, for organisations structurally, to, for incumbent organisations in the, in the business world to be, to be anticipating. It's, that's the job of a board of directors, to be, to be anticipating the big strategic challenges coming at you and who are the people who are going to disrupt you. And I always remember I was, uh, I was associated with this little thing called text publishing years ago that had a good idea to uh, start publishing real estate advertisements and and doing it online and doing colour things, and and we had the uh, the management of Fairfax came along and said, "You'll never go anywhere. You know, we're still going to have the Saturday classifieds, and you've got no idea." And so, you know, some organisations, particularly incumbent organisations that are very profitable businesses, it's just it's just hard. And this is why, in this era of venture capital and entrepreneurship we're living in now, you know, it's the disruptors that tend to win. It's the, you know, and that's a, that's 
fundamentally a good thing for, for the world. You know, it means that the, our economy is evolving. It means society is evolving. And, and uh, you know, the, the venture capital boom is, is doing good things for the world. It's, it, it, there's now an, an absolute revolution going on in, in, in energy, investment in green energy. And, uh, and so, you know, the forces of capitalism are actually going to help solve some of those, those you know, those, those sort of wicked problems we're all dealing with. I guess it's a sort of roundabout way of saying, in theory, organisations should think of and anticipate the big structural problems. It's hard to do it when you're an incumbent and you're in a pretty pretty comfortable position. You know, there are grounds for optimism that at a global level, countries and, and, and societies are coming together to, ch- to, to tackle the biggest one of all. I would uh, agree with, with John. I think it's a really good question. I think ironically, in many ways, the fact that we've just come through what has been extremely disruptive and where we've had to act and we've had to make decisions really quickly, I think is actually going to spur us on, all of us, to deal with this absolutely wicked problem. And, and you know, I think, I think, I mean, we've been talking about it through this panel that we have seen opportunities come out of what has been an extraordinarily challenging couple of years, but I think it's made us all think, well, we can actually deal with this big wicked problem that that is ahead of us and we're very conscious of it uh, at UQ you know we have to be both a role model you know we're a large institution we have to act in a way that uh, role models the kinds of things uh, we should be doing into the future we've got to uh, have all of the courses etc the research but our students are pushing us I can tell you to make change and and that's a good thing but we also need to remember that as individuals and as organizations, we can still act. And so I'm really proud of my organization because we now have recycled materials in our kitchen. That's what our kitchen is actually made of. We are very conscious of reminding each other not to get business cards because you can connect on LinkedIn. We're getting QR codes. Um, So we're, we're trying to find really, really, simple ways that as individuals and as an organization we can lead towards making our planet a better place to live and and encouraging that across the entire sector because that's what we do for a living we advocate in the interest of time um, i'd like to thank all of our panelists for an absolutely brilliant um, discussion I, i hope you will agree with me that we've all learned a lot through the discussions and the insights tonight so please let's thank our panelists I'd also like to thank our amazing alumni and community from around the world for joining us both in person as well as um, virtually um, to learn from this incredible um, change makers um, through our UQ community. Um, We will be in touch shortly with some further resources from um, our conversation today, including a commentary piece that our panellists have contributed to, and there will also be other opportunities to learn more about leading through uncertainty. Um, Please share tonight's discussion with your networks um, to generate your own conversations. We're always encouraging deeper learning. Um, And please continue to send any questions that you have on tonight's event in.